Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the question of why has it taken President Biden so long to realize the Republicans don't want to work with him and they want to destroy him, particularly since the GOP's leader, Donald Trump, is dedicated to undermining Biden's legitimacy as Trump claims he won the last election, which the vast majority of Republicans now believe. Joining us to discuss whether the big lie could have been nipped in the bud just after January the 6th when Republican leaders were speaking out against Trump is Garrett Epps, a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke and the University of Oregon. He is the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution and we will discuss his latest article at the Washington Monthly, How to Fix the Senate by Essentially, Though Not Quite, Abolishing It. Then we'll examine further whether Biden's forceful speech will change minds in the Senate since he pointed out that, quote, not a single Republican has displayed the courage to stand up to a defeated president to protect America's right to vote. Not one, not one. Joining us to discuss whether there is a path forward to protect voting rights is Richard Brifault, the Joseph P. Chamberlain Professor of Legislation at Columbia Law School, where his area of focus includes state and local government, constitutional law, regulation and public policy, government ethics, gerrymandering and fair elections. Then finally, with a federal judge in Manhattan ruling against Prince Andrew's attempt to dismiss a lawsuit from going to trial brought by Virginia Giuffre, who claims she was trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell to have sex with the British royal when she was underage. We will speak with Aya Gruber, professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, who has written widely on rape law, the feminist critique of provocation and self-defense, domestic violence reform, and on prostitution and human trafficking. Her latest book is The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration, And we will assess how soon Prince Andrew will pay off his accuser to avoid the embarrassment of a public trial now that the judge has ruled a 2009 settlement with Epstein to shield potential defendants does not protect him. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Garrett Epps, who's a legal affairs editor of the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. And he's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is How to Fix the Senate by Essentially, Though Not Quite, Abolishing It. Welcome to Background Briefing, Garrett Epps. Uh, Ian, great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Garrett. And um, yesterday... President Biden, a veteran of the United States Senate, at one point he said, I'm old, I'm so damn old. But he did talk a lot about the history of the Senate, even talking about how Strom Thurmond, who filibustered against voting rights, 
signed the voting rights bill, supported it. And what's happening to the Republicans today even talked about how the struggle is between plutocracy and democracy. And it was a very passionate speech. And my feeling is that I wish this would have happened after January the 6th and that Biden would have come out fighting against this imposter, this fraud, this man who lost an election, who has poisoned American politics, who has captured the Republican Party based on a lie that he won, and he's the gift that keeps on giving for, to a foreign dictator, Vladimir Putin, who wants to divide us and turn us against each other. And this is all happening because of his childhood, having a horrible father. He's got to be a winner. He can't be a loser. So it's all about a sick man's ego, not being able to accept defeat. But the fact that the Democrats and Biden let it go for so long, it's metastasized now. They keep underestimating this guy. And frankly, as powerful and as needed Biden's speech was yesterday, I was left thinking, I wish you would have said this back then, after January the 6th, when people like Mitch McConnell were calling for Trump's head. How does it strike you? I'm sorry to have a go on a rant, but <laughs> I, frankly, I was so grateful to hear him say that, but I just, I just hope that it's not too late. Well, I, I think that, you, you know, as a society, uh, particularly the political class of our society is, has suffered and has suffered for the last decade and more from just simple lack of imagination, uh, which in Washington, where I lived for many years, really passes as wisdom. That's that's the way you earn a reputation uh, in Washington is just by saying, no, nothing, nothing to see here, move along. Um, and I think that it was very hard to, for people to internalize, even after they saw what happened with Obama. It was very hard for people to internalize uh, that the, the new Republican Party really wasn't amenable to any of the standard uh, tropes of American politics. They didn't want to work together. They didn't want to govern. They didn't want to make people's lives better. All they wanted was to retain power and protect the economic privilege that shores that party up. And they are willing to do anything for it. And so you remember that in 2012, uh, Barack Obama was reelected. He got 53 percent of the vote. You know, he was really at a, at a high point. And he said to people, people said, what are you going to do with this intransigent Republican uh, opposition in the Congress? He says, oh, the fever will break. It was this uh, this idea that by by reaching out in the traditional Americans way and talking about Everett Dirksen or whoever it may be, uh, that that we would appeal to the better angels of our nature. You know, the, this phrase that was kidnapped from Lincoln uh, and that that eventually uh, the center would reassert itself. Well, that, that is not true. There is no particular centrist wing in the Republican Party. And they aren't they don't share the basic commitments. They no longer do. And and before anybody dismisses me as just a rampant partisan, I, I was just reviewing my political history uh, for my kids not long ago. And, and I told them to their surprise that the first vote I ever cast was for a Republican. 
And this was in Virginia, where a Republican Party was a moderate party of racial decency. That's a long time ago. That that Republican Party is gone. And Joe Biden remembers when it existed and he thought he could bring it back by being nice. And this this mistake keeps being made over and over. Now, that said, I'm a little reluctant to say that he can't achieve anything with the, the Bible tells us if the trumpet sounds an uncertain note who will gird himself for the battle. And so finally, we've got a leader who's willing to say out loud what everybody's thinking. But it is late in the game. You know, the second year of a presidency is always a, a low point for the president's popularity. And uh, it's it's it, it will be remarkable if public opinion turns toward him and the Democrats in the next 10 months. And just in the next 10 days, what's going to happen, do you think, in terms of uh, what Schumer is trying to do in getting the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act through the Senate with Manchin and Sinema? My understanding is that Sinema is even more determined not to change the filibuster than Manchin is. And she's, her reasoning is based upon completely flawed logic that she's expressed in an op-ed that she wrote for the Washington Post some time back. So she's dangerous, I think, and immovable. So how do you think Schumer's going to get around those two? You know, um, there's a couple of things. A, if you ask me what's going on in Senator Schumer's mind, I am, uh, I am mystified and have always been. Uh, it is important to note that Chuck Schumer, whom I've known for 50-some years, is basically a winner in the sense that, you know, if you put him down in a contest, he'll bite your throat out if that's what it takes to win. That said, it doesn't mean that he has a plan. This could just be, uh, you know, the moment when the the fighter pilot realizes he has no ammunition left, and so he uh, sails his plane into the aircraft carrier to blow it up. They may just say, let's get this done one way or another, succeed or fail. Um, it There is some possibility that doing that will put pressure on people, including some people on the other side of the aisle who say they believe in voting rights. Um, Kirsten Cinema is a mystery to me, I got to say, so I, I'm not going to speculate on her. Mm. Again, I'm speaking with Garrett Epps, who's a legal affairs editor at the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. And he's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is How to Fix the Senate by Essentially, Though Not Quite, Abolishing It. So let's talk about what can be done with this broken Senate, with this polarized Senate, that could change hands, and if a lot of pressure is put on both Mansion and Cinema, it's not inconceivable that they could walk across the aisle or decide to become independents and not caucus with the Democrats, and McConnell comes back. So the whole thing is hanging by a thread. So in that context, talk about your your ideas of not quite abolishing the Senate. Well, uh, to start with, we have to Note that really, since even before the Constitution went into effect, uh, the Senate was and was understood to be the place where democracy goes to die, where 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 things come to a halt. And James Madison, the father of our Constitution and one of the greatest American political thinkers, 
was absolutely rabid in his hatred of the Senate that emerged from the Philadelphia Convention. He had proposed a Senate in which representation would be proportional to, to population. And the small states threatened to blow up the entire constitutional convention uh, and destroy any hope for constitutional reform if they that wasn't taken off the table. So this is the so-called great compromise, which might you know, better have been called the desperate compromise. Uh, and from then on, the Senate has been the kind of firewall of privilege. It, it was where slavery was absolutely defended uh, right up until the advent of uh, civil war. It was where all civil rights measures went to die. Uh, you know, Ian, people talk to me about how the filibuster is a part of democracy and how we, you know, this this helps prevent the uh, minority from being uh, oppressed and how I shouldn't oppose it. And I always say to them, do you remember where you were on June 10th, 1964? Uh, of course, most of them weren't even alive, but I remember vividly where I was on the day that the Senate uh, got 67 votes, which is what you needed then, to break the filibuster on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And the vote was so close, they had to carry Senator Claire Engel onto the floor of the Senate on a gurney. He was dying. He died a few days later. And when his name was called, uh, you know, Mr. Engel, how say you, he couldn't speak. He was so ill. He pointed to his eye to say I. Uh, that's how hard it was. Uh, and, uh, you know, anybody who says to me that the filibuster has some function in our society is, I think, historically illiterate and in political terms, you know, at best naive. It really is a, a useless vestigial organ. And we have this dreadful encumbrance in the Constitution, which is a provision in Article 5 that says no state shall without its consent be deprived of equal suffrage in the Senate, which means that Wyoming gets two senators. I mean, they barely have two people in Wyoming, but they, they have to pick two of them and send them off to be senators. Uh, and California, you know, with 47 times or however much the population gets two senators. Uh, and the result is this, this horribly unrepresentative body, uh, which has stumbled by accident into this rule of debate that allows a minority of a minority to stop measures from going through. Um, now, if we can't just change that, we couldn't just say, you know, yes, uh, from now on, equal means proportion to population and big states will get more senators. Why not? They have more people. If we can't do that, if Article 5 says we can't do that, then we need to take the route that you're probably familiar with of what was done uh, over a period of time to the British House of Lords, because at one time, you know, the House of Lords was was a very formidable player in uh, uh, parliamentary politics. Uh, and over time, culminating with um, Tony Blair, uh, they began to just move power and authority away from the House of Lords on the grounds that this this sort of uh, moldery, moldering gentlemen's club made up of gouty old fools was just not suitable to be an equal partner with the commons. We could do the same thing by constitutional amendment. Now, I don't want anybody to, to call in and say, you know, the Constitution says that the Senate has to do X and Y. I understand that. The question is, how could we change our Constitution? 
we may be getting to the point where it's change or die. And I think if we took away the authority of the Senate to do the following things, confirm or reject nominees, confirm or reject treaties, and uh, confirm or reject bills that are sent over from the House of Representatives, uh, we'd have a much better system. All of a sudden, we, you know, the, the House would approve presidential appointments, the House would approve or reject treaties, um, the House would originate bills, and the Senate, under my system, would be able to provide advice, right? We, we, we see your bill. The bill would have to be sent to the Senate. They could debate it, and they could send their objections back to the House. Uh, you know, the Senate likes to call itself the world's greatest deliberative body, which uh, it isn't anymore, because the incentives to be a senator are to be, you know, someone who, who holds up progress. Uh, but if the Senate didn't have that much power, you might see people running for it who actually have something to say in these debates, who, who can provide advice to the president and advice to the House. Uh, but the idea that this, this body should have a stranglehold on American democracy and that it should have a rule that gives uh, 40 senators a stranglehold, even on the body itself, it's obscene. Well, we know that by 2040, 68% of the senators will represent 40% of the population. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about Wyoming and other small red states, of course, on the Democratic side, you have Delaware and Rhode Island. What about making Washington, D.C. a state and Puerto Rico a state? Is that a means to try and... Uh, redress that imbalance? Well, I, I think statehood for both those those places would be fabulous. I, I, I really do. And not only that, I mean, not you know, people might regard it as a political ploy. It isn't. The district, of course, is entitled to, to statehood. You know, it's got a bigger population than two or three of the American states. And um, Puerto Rico, we have uh, the, the treatment that Puerto Rico's and its treatment has stretched our constitution almost to the breaking point. The constitution was not formed for an empire and we shouldn't be holding people in a kind of second class status. Puerto Rico ought to be a state and I think things would go better on the island and here in the US if it was. Uh, that doesn't in the end tackle the, the central obscenity of this non-representative body, but it might help move us out of the trough that we're in right now. So in terms of your ideas, though, that are in, the, in your article at the Washington Monthly, how to fix the Senate by essentially, though, not quite abolishing it, to take away all those functions that you mentioned and give them to the House, none of that requires a constitutional amendment? It can all be done by... Uh... No, no, it, it requires a constitutional amendment, and it absolutely does. And right. uh, I, I put this out there. I, I just, I want to say this, and I think we all need to focus on it because it's the next thing that's sort of coming down the pike. And that is our constitution is being stretched to the breaking point and beyond. It is failing. It failed once before in 1861. It is failing now. It is going to need change. And of course, the, the right wing, which is always forehanded in these matters, 
has got a movement going for a new constitutional convention. I anticipate that they will push for this within the next four to six years that will completely rewrite the document and make it, you know, uh, right. Kind of- and that, that, Effort is being funded by the Koch brothers. So yes, absolutely. you ought to figure out exactly what kind of constitution the Koch brothers want, a libertarian yes. constitution of 100% plutocracy. And, and we have to be ready with ideas that would make the country better rather than worse when it becomes clear, if it does, and, and I fear it will, becomes clear that the constitution has failed. Uh, and so I wrote this article and I said in the article, look, I know there. every time you put something out this, you get people writing you and saying, it'll never happen. A constitutional amendment process is too hard. Why don't you shut up? And I, I said, you know, this is not the time for that. This is the time to really think about uh, a new constitution or what we could do to make this constitution really democratic. Um, I don't know whether you followed this, but the journal Democracy commissioned uh, 30 or 40 really smart constitutional law professors of uh, uh, shades of opinion, not not all progressives, to rewrite a new constitution, which is now available on the web called the Democracy Constitution. Uh, You know, and I think there's a general perception that constitutional reform is a matter of life or death at this matter. But just in the last uh, minute or so, Garrett, how do you get the American people and to wake up. And Biden tried to do that yesterday, and he addressed the young people that are in the audience there in Atlanta. <laughs> Get up and move. And, you know, you need a movement, obviously. But can you frame the movement? And Biden sort of mentioned it just in passing, that the real struggle is between democracy and autocracy. Well, I would say the demo- it's between democracy and plutocracy, but in this case, you've got an autocrat who is making a push to become the next president, and he's undermining Biden's presidency. He's done this from day one. So you've got what political scientists at Harvard, Jacob Hacker, calls plutocratic oh. populism. That's right. that's the reality of today. It's a brilliant move on the part of the plutocrats and, and Trump to have a government that serves the interests of the plutocracy but is able to divide working Americans and get them to fight amongst each other over stupid things like culture wars and and not notice income inequality and the extent to which they're getting hosed. That's the reality. Well, you know, Ian, I, I think that we need to face the prospect, which is not a guarantee, but it's a, a very real possibility, that American democracy will really fail in the next three years, that by 2025, we will have uh, uh, Congress and a president uh, committed to, and, and I'm not, I don't want to say plutocracy because that's polite. Uh, this is autocracy. This will be guns in the streets. This will be, be you know, uh, the United States uh, as a nuclear armed uh, uh, Kazakhstan, you know, if you will. And at that moment, you know, there's going to be one hell of a struggle. Uh, the progressive forces in the United States are not going to just say, oh, well, you know, the Senate, uh, Joe Manchin says we can't have democracy. We'll all go off to the camps and be happy. That's not going to happen. There's going to be a fight. And when that happens, everything's going to be on the table, including constitutional reform. We're not in a period of normal politics. 
And at some point, people will recognize the danger. They will fight back. It may be too late and it may not. But uh, I think it's really important to keep in front of us, not just reacting to what the other side's doing, but keep in front of people that we are really talking about a real democracy where their votes would mean something. Because I think people intuitively understand that. And one of the reasons people turn off from politics is they say, my vote doesn't mean anything. Well, you know, under the present situation, under the present constitution, with the Senate, with all of these uh, things, you know, they have a point. It's very hard to sit down to somebody and say, no, your, your vote really makes a huge amount of difference. Look, look what we've done. We've made Joe Manchin the climate czar. It, it is really a problem. But when people face what the real catastrophic consequences of the of the path we're on, they may become engaged in the struggle, and there's more of us than there are of them. Well, Garrett Epps, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Always, always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Garrett Epps, who's a legal affairs editor at the Washington Monthly, who has taught constitutional law at American University, the University of Baltimore, Boston College, Duke, and the University of Oregon. And he's the author of American Epic, Reading the U.S. Constitution. And his latest article at the Washington Monthly is How to Fix the Senate by Essentially, Though Not Quite, Abolishing It. We're going to take a brief station break and go back examining whether President Biden's forceful speech yesterday will change minds in the Senate. From senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside region will soon shake your windows and rattle your walls. For the times they are a-changing. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Brifold, who is the Joseph P. Chamberlain Professor of Legislation at Columbia Law School, where his areas of focus include state and local government, constitutional law, regulation and public policy, government ethics, gerrymandering, and fair elections. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Brifold. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And yesterday... Tuesday, President Biden made a very passionate speech about voting rights and obviously in referring to what happened on January the 6th uh, of 2021, Biden said, talking about former President Donald Trump, he said Trump sought to win through violence what he had lost through the ballot box to impose the will of a mob to overturn free and fair elections and for the first time in American history to stop peaceful transfer of power. They failed, they failed, but democracy's victory is not certain, nor is democracy's future. This is the moment to decide. So could you make the case, Richard, that the insurrection, the assault on the Capitol, was an assault, an attack on voting rights? Yes, actually you could. I mean, um, this was a uh, mob of people. Um, Again, with the January 6th commission, the committee is fully investigating with actually what was behind that. But there was clearly a mob of people uh, inspired by Trump, if not directed by him, who went in there and tried to stop the the, certific- the uh, official 
counting and, and certification of the results of the electoral vote, which meant they were trying to nullify the presidential election. And if nullifying an election is a violation of the right to vote of the, um, the majority of voters who voted a certain way, who voted for Biden. So obviously the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, is bristling at the Biden speech and said it was beneath the office for Biden to say what he said bluntly. So if you can't persuade, and obviously Biden was being pretty tough with his message, if you can't persuade the Republicans in the Senate to deal with voting rights, then what course do you see forward for Chuck Schumer? He's not saying exactly what he's going to do, but he's, he's laid down a marker of January the 17th to get something done. Since you study voting rights, it doesn't seem like he has a lot of options, does he? Yeah, I agree with you. I'm not sure what he's going to what he's going to accomplish other than maybe taking some symbolic votes. I mean, there are certain kinds of um, kind of procedural maneuvers that one could imagine that the Senate, the House and the Senate could do that might be able to do something. But you're right. I mean, I mean, not only does he not have uh, any Republicans, it's not completely clear he has all the Democrats for some of the things they're proposing. I mean, Obviously, the, the big issue, as you obviously know, is the filibuster, that it's not just a matter of getting 50 or 51 votes to pass voting reform. It's a matter of getting 60 votes to take up the voting reform and right or or possibly getting 51 votes to vote to change the rules uh, for taking up voting reform. But he's not there. At, at this point, it's not clear there's more than 48 votes for some kind of and it's not even clear what that change would be, some kind of change in the Senate's procedures that would allow a simple majority to uh, change the law, to adopt a voting reform law. So I don't really know what the majority leader has up his sleeve, if anything, that would that would get the Senate to actually formally consider this. I mean, the, I mean, as he points out, and fairly, and President pointed out, it's not even a matter of, of a voting reform law passing, Senate won't even debate it because there's not 60 votes to say, let's start debating. And that, in some ways, is almost as much, if not more, of a disgrace than not passing a voting reform law. Well, it's pretty clear from McConnell's fit of peak at Biden's, and, and Mitt Romney suggested the tone was too confrontational. So he's made the Republicans a little uncomfortable. And in fact, Biden said yesterday, quote, not a single Republican has displayed the courage to stand up to a defeated president to protect America's right to vote. Not one, not one, he emphasized. Do you want to be on the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be on the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be on the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? Now, it doesn't sound like it worked on them and made the Republicans uncomfortable and perhaps even more obdurate. So is it working on the Democrats? I mean, I'm assuming that that's what it was aimed at, right? Mansion and cinema. It's not clear. I mean, you know, they're both pretty, um, I mean, I'm not a pol political expert. They're not, they're both pretty hard to read. They have both, I think, expressed some sympathy for some voting law changes, but the hard part is not the voting law, but the filibuster, the rules for taking up uh, the voting laws. And I think Senator Sinema said something today about, she made a nice point, which is if you change the Senate's procedures for a voting law that expands and protects the right to vote, it's quite possible in the future Senate, 
you might have a Senate majority that wants to contract the right to vote. Um, so maybe there's some, I mean, she makes, you know, legitimate point that the Democrat control of the Senate is, you know, by a hair. Uh, and a year from now, Democrats might be using the filibuster themselves. Right, but that's an argument to basically do nothing. I mean, because obviously. Well, I mean, I mean, the argument would be if you could somehow. I mean, I mean, I think what Biden's major point, which in the end becomes a political point, uh, which is in past years when Congress considered voting rights, it, it, it drew support from both Democrats and Republicans. He makes the point that the 2006 Voting Rights Act, I think, was unanimous in the Senate, and that he said, yeah, Strom Thurmond, even Strom Thurmond, uh, voted for the Voting Rights Act. So in, you know, in prior voting rights acts in Congress has passed major voting laws multiple times in 1965 and in 1982 and in 2006, uh, they've been bipartisan. And, and, you know, what is striking now is not just the Republicans or most of the Republicans are against voting reform, but all of them are against even talking about it. Now, that just, you know, making that speech is not may not change their minds. It's not clear it has, but it is probably a point worth underscoring. So, Richard Befault, assuming that Schumer accomplishes something on by January the seventeenth, Martin Luther King's birthday, if you did get Mansion's bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, and the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act passed, it's my understanding that it goes into the courts, and even you know, voting rights legislation that was passed and signed into law decades ago is still being contested in the courts. So. This is not a magic wand, is it? Well, some of the provisions are more straightforward and more likely to be effect, you know, effective immediately than others. So uh, some of the most basic parts of, of the proposal in the Freedom to Vote Act are things like uh, automatic voter registration, protecting early voting, protecting uh, mail-in voting, facilitating voter registration, as I said, uh, limiting voter purges. Um, if, to the extent that these laws are written to deal with federal elections, in other words, uh, basically saying that states can't prevent mail-in voting or and have to provide a certain number of weeks for early voting, have to allow drop boxes for mail-in voting, a lot of that is what's in the law. It's pretty clear Congress has the right to establish the rules that governing voting in federal elections. Can they regulate the state elections too? That's probably a closer question. But are the states going to want to have two sets of laws? Uh, for their federal elections and for their state elections. It's not clear. A lot of a number of other uh, voting laws, like the National Voter Registration Act of 1993, uh, focused on uh, making it easier to register for federal elections, but very few states were interested in having two registration systems. So there are a number of things in these proposals, particularly in the Freedom to Vote Act, which I think are pretty straightforward and wouldn't present very serious legal issues. And in terms of the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, that's designed to correct the Supreme Court ruling by Chief Justice John Roberts, who announced the gutting of Section 5, right, and the weakening of Section 2 mm -hmm. of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and again, some of these things, some of the, 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 the John Lewis Act, in terms of its kind of um, restoration of aspects of the Voting Rights Act that were uh, undone, as you mentioned, the Shelby County case, and also... Um, the case decider uh, uh, last year, the Brnovich case, some of that just makes it by kind of beefing up the statute, making the standards clearer, 
and providing more justification in the statute for the restrictions, a lot of that is designed to allow the, you know, the statute to be sustained in court. Whether it will succeed or not, maybe it's an open question. But in some ways, what those are, what it, I, what that statute would do would make it easier for uh, people claiming discrimination to bring challenges. Uh, what the Freedom to Vote Act does is actually isn't based on any theory of discrimination or any theory that uh, there's a problem that, you know, that there's a discriminatory aspect of the state laws. It basically says these are the ground rules for voting that you have to have nationwide, at the very least for federal elections. So there's a little bit of a difference in what the two laws do, the problems that the two laws address. But just in the last couple of minutes, when you have the governor of Georgia, who himself is suspected of winning an election illegitimately that Stacey Abrams should have won, uh, he, of course, is using the argument that everything that Biden's trying to do and the Democrats are trying to do is a federal takeover of the state's prerogatives in running elections. So uh, imagine that's an argument that's going to be foisted quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, certainly the, there is a federalism argument. And, um, you know, historically, traditionally, most of our voting rules have been set by the states. But the whole point of the current debate or the debate the Senate is not having is that there are many states now that appear to be committed to making it harder to vote on voting. It, voting is a constitutional right. But, I mean, not literally, but it's a fundamental right. The Supreme Court's repeatedly over and over again recognized that voting is a that voting not just in federal elections, but in state and local elections is a fundamental right. Um, and it is not unusual in our history if if there's a fundamental right, but that is being that is violated or just being cut back in the states that Congress might act to protect it. So, I mean, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was opposed in by many uh, as federalizing voting. Uh, we have a federal law dealing with, the, with voter registration. If something is important enough and deals with fundamental rights, uh, it's not unusual to have federal legislation on it. And the supremacy clause, doesn't it come into play? Well, sure. I mean, uh, supremacy clause, but in particular for elections, there is a provision of the Constitution that gives Congress the power to write the election laws for federal elections. At the very least, for the elections, the elections of president of, well, for sure, the elections of the Senate and the House of Representatives. Well, I mean, what's at stake in this battle is American democracy itself. And just in closing, do you see any signs that the politicians and the people in this country are taking it as seriously as Biden warned us? Well, unfortunately, I think the politicians who are taking it seriously are the politicians who are trying to cut back on voting and their supporters. So, but I do think it's kind it is, this whole debate, I think, has been pretty asymmetric. Uh, the folks who are troubled by the expansion of voting or troubled that a lot of people who they would not like to have the vote have it, they've been pretty active and engaged. Uh, the problem is the people on the other side, the people who believe in democracy who want to protect the vote, I don't think they have fully grasped the nature of the seriousness of the, of the threat. Or they said that they have, they haven't fully mobilized to, uh, to push it back. Well, Richard Buffault, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Brefault, who is the Joseph P. Chamberlain Professor of Legislation at Columbia Law School, where his areas of focus include state and local government, constitutional law, regulation and public policy, government ethics, gerrymandering, and fair elections. 
We can take a brief station break and back looking into a ruling by a federal judge against Prince Andrew's attempt to dismiss a lawsuit from going to trial brought by Virginia Dufresne, who claims she was trafficked by Epstein and Maxwell to have sex with the British royal when she was underage. Stand this pressure much longer. Somebody say a prayer. Alabama's got me so upset, and Tennessee's made me lose my rest. Everybody knows about Mississippi. Gone there. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ira Gruber, who's a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, who teaches and writes in the area of criminal law and procedure, comparative and international law, critical theory, and feminism. She's written widely on rape law, the feminist critique of provocation and self-defense, domestic violence reform, and on prostitution and human trafficking. And her latest book is The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aya Gruber. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And today, Wednesday, federal judge in New York in Manhattan, uh, Lewis Kaplan, ruled in rejecting arguments that a 2009 settlement with Jeffrey Epstein shielded Prince Andrew from litigation going forward. And the lawsuit, of course, was brought by Virginia Jufrey, who was 17 years old at the time and is accusing Prince Andrew. In fact, she was trafficked, according to her charges, she was trafficked to New York and to an island in the Bahamas as well. But specifically, she was trafficked to London to Ghislaine Maxwell's house where she was forced to have sex with Prince Andrew. So given that this case is going forward and Prince Andrew's tried to do everything he could to stop it, is this going to open up the whole question of the settlement that the former Labor Secretary Acosta made with Epstein back in 2009, which everybody thought was pretty appalling. There was a clause in that settlement talking about other potential defendants. So is that door open now? Well, I absolutely think the door is open. Um, This was a non-prosecution agreement and settlement agreement that was uh, reached back in 2007, I believe. And it was between Jeffrey Epstein and Virginia Giuffre, and it released Epstein and other potential defendants, right, who for whom claims could have been brought. Um, And so the question became, well, okay, does that include Prince Andrew? Since the agreement itself um, claimed that Epstein trafficked Jufre to various people, including quote unquote royalty. So did that other potential defendants mean to include Prince Andrew? And the judge said, you know, at this point in the proceedings, I'm not gonna dismiss the case because there are competing interpretations of what that language meant. So Prince Andrew is saying, you know, anybody who was sort of referenced as a person that Giuffre 
was trafficked to, and he was sort of obliquely referenced as royalty, you know, that person is included. Whereas Jufre is saying, no, it's actually got to be people who could have been prosecuted in federal court in Florida at the time. And actually, Andrew would not have fallen under that jurisdiction. So they have two different ideas of what it means to be a potential defendant. And so what the judge said was, given that there's an ambiguity at this point, I'm not going to dismiss the case. Yes, the judge said, what is a potential defendant as distinguished from a defendant? Uh, He asked that of Prince Andrew's lawyer in the last time they appeared. So this case will be uh, tried in September, you know, close to an important election. Do you think it's going to increase focusing on sex trafficking and perhaps some of these other prominent people that have been named by Virginia Jufre and others? Um, you know, I absolutely think that if you've uh, if you're on the list of people accused by Virginia Jufre, this ruling is something that should send a chill up your spine um, because it's basically saying that these cases can go forward. Now, you know, jail is not on the table. This is not a criminal case. This is a civil case for money, but it's certainly a case that you know if you're in the position of Prince Andrew, you don't want a judgment out there that you engaged in sex trafficking. You know, so this is something that I think would be extremely worrying to the people in Epstein's orbit. And as we know, he had a prominent orbit. So I I think there's uh, many people in powerful positions who are not so happy today about this ruling. And what does it say about Prince Andrew, the, the extent to which he's fought this case going forward, trying to suggest that somehow Virginia Jufre was disqualified because she lived in Australia? Well, I mean, I don't think it's unusual for, um, you know, a defendant to bring up all kinds of grounds to dismiss a case, whether it is on the basis of the prior release or jurisdictional um, But again, this is an early stage of proceedings and Prince Andrew moved to dismiss, which means that, you know, he really had to show that there's no basis for a claim, that the complaint doesn't even state a claim. Um, And that's a pretty high burden for dismissal. And so the judge said, no, I think that this states a claim. I think that it, you know, that it's sufficiently unclear that the release applies to Andrew for it to go forward to a trial. And I, you know, I don't doubt that we'll see other motions trying to put an end to this case before it goes to trial, for example, a motion for summary judgment. Um, but if that's also denied, I think we probably could expect a settlement out of this case. I don't think that the royals want this going in front of a federal jury. And there was a previous settlement, right, from Epstein. And that was the settlement that included the gag on other potential defendants. And since I think the judge made it clear that, or I think it was David Boyce, the lawyer for Virginia Guffrey, made it clear that that 2009 agreement was Epstein's to enforce. And of course, he's not alive, so he can't enforce it. So is there any argument there that she's already been paid off? Right. So... Jeffrey Epstein's lawyers and Virginia Jufre's lawyers came together and they came up with this agreement. So it is true that it's between them. But if in the course of that agreement, Virginia Jufre 
you know, made a legally binding promise not to sue other people. Those other people could be third party beneficiaries of that agreement. And the question is, you know, is Prince Andrew one of them? And what the judge said was, I am not going to rule at this time that Prince Andrew was released from liability under that agreement. I think it's sufficiently vague. And we have, you know, one of the parties to the agreement saying that's not what I intended. Um, when I said other potential defendants, I didn't mean him. Um, you know, there's enough of a question about that where the judge is going to let it go forward. So it's conceivable that even though he wasn't a party to an agreement, he could be released from liability, but the judge is not ready to dismiss the case on the ground at this point. So then it would become a question of fact, you know, did that cover um, Prince Andrew? And that's something that could be decided later at trial if the case goes to trial. And again, I'm speaking with Aya Gruber, who's a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, who teaches and writes in the area of criminal law and procedure comparative international law, critical theory, and feminism. She's written widely on rape law, the feminist critique of provocation and self-defense, domestic violence reform, and on prostitution and human trafficking. And her latest book is The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Well, already, of course, we've learned from the complaints that, just quoting from the complaints, on one occasion, Prince Andrew sexually abused the plaintiff, Virginia Guffrey, in London at at Ghislaine Maxwell's home, and one paragraph in the complaint against Andrew alleges that during this encounter, Epstein, Maxwell, and Prince Andrew forced the plaintiff, then a child of 17 years old, to have sexual intercourse with Prince Andrew against her will. And, of course, she also gave details of going out to a club and what a terrible dancer he was and how he sweated a lot. And now, I don't know whether this trial is going to be kind of tabloid fodder, but David Boyes, her attorney, plans to scrutinize the prince's claim that he had a medical inability to sweat, which was his excuse or alibi that he tried out in an interview he did with the BBC some time back that all uh, analysts and critics uh, suggest he fell pretty flat. So is that what we're heading for, Aya? Tabloid I, mean, I, I would I would think so. I, I would think this would be a, a, you know, for lack of a better phrase, a royal nightmare, you know, for Andrew, for Prince Andrew, for this to go to trial. I mean, a trial is going to be, uh, you know, and, and certainly I would I would think in the UK, uh, the trial is going to be a, a huge spectacle and a high profile event. So, again, this is a civil suit. Right. It's settled by money. It's not settled by people losing liberty. And the question is whether, you know, Prince Andrew is going to want to go through with a trial versus just cough up the money. You know, I guess playing devil's advocate, if, if this is kind of um, a situation where, you know, Drew Free was sort of a willing to the extent that, you know, somebody underage can be that willing, but it, at least not, you know, a, a forced participant. So, yeah, definitely underage groomed into this, but now is kind of like making the rounds of of getting money from anybody who was involved and alleging sexual assault, you know, that's going to be a winning strategy because I don't think that prominent people are going to want it to go to trial. But on the other hand, I mean, it's very hard to imagine that any defense is going to fly because even if you said, okay, this was a person who was a willing participant in sexual acts. Well, the person was underage, 
right? And so I just think the inherent liability that comes along with doing anything sexual with somebody who's under the age of 18 is is just going to make every sort of spin that Prince Andrew or others could put on this really unpalatable to the public. Um, So I just can't imagine that Prince Andrew is going to go forward with like sort of publicly blaming the victim and and fighting this. But, you know, who knows? (laughs) He, He tried before and he might still in the future. Well, already, Virginia Dufresne's lawyer, David Boyes, he wrote on December the 30th, quote, if Prince Andrew truly has no documents concerning his communications with Maxwell or Epstein, his travels to Florida, New York, or various locations in London, his alleged medical inability to sweat, or anything that would support the alibis that he gave in his BBC interview, then continuing with discovery will not be burdensome to him at all. There's almost a gleeful tone there, wouldn't you say? I Well, I think what he's saying is that Prince Andrew is lying, right? I mean, so Prince Andrew's point of view is, oh, I don't even know who this person is, right? Um, And so, I mean, again, that's all he can say, because what's he going to say? Oh, it was consensual? Well, again, she's 17. Um, It's it's not going to work. So he's going to say, oh, I, you know, I don't even know this person. Well, you know, that picture has made the rounds in, in the press. So that's very difficult to maintain. Um, and so again, it's, it's his word against hers and there's, and if there's going to be a trial, she's going to get up there and and say what she knows and it's going to go to a jury and how's he going to defend against it? He's just going to say his side of the story, but already we've seen that fall a little bit flat that, you know, there's this picture out there and (laughs) it's pretty clear and people just don't believe him when he says, I don't know this person. Right. And of course, there have been many other photographs that surfaced during the Glenn Maxwell trial, including pictures of Glenn Maxwell and Epstein sitting on the porch of the Queen's little cabin, the private cabin she has up at her state in uh, estate in uh, Scotland, Balmoral, where quite often the uh, the royal family are photographed on the same spot. So it wouldn't be very hard for anybody to suggest that Maxwell and Epstein had close connections with Prince Andrew. And I guess the photograph that you're talking about adds to that. But just in closing, are you suggesting, I agree that, in other words, if she's going to get Andrew to settle because he doesn't want to embarrass the royal family, and it clearly will embarrass them, could she then go after others? I don't know whether she's accused Bill Clinton or Bill Gates or Donald Trump, but there have been some big names that have been mentioned that have been beneficiaries of the sexual trafficking services that Epstein provided. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure whether she has accused, you know, other Donald Trump, but there's certainly been links between the Clintons, the Trumps, very powerful people, and Epstein. So one could imagine that there are victims out there who could accuse these parties of being beneficiaries of Epstein's now at this point established sex trafficking scheme, right? Um, where we've seen now Ghislaine Maxwell be convicted, Jeffrey Epstein jailed because of that scheme. You know, could I imagine that other powerful people could be accused by either 
Jufre herself or somebody else? Yes. Is it going to be, you know, as successful a calculation as this? It depends, right? Our pictures out there. What's the evidence? You know, are these other parties going to be able to deny it? And will they have proof of their denial? So it's it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds. But one thing that this episode makes clear is it's a whole heck of a lot less likely now that that non-prosecution agreement and settlement that came back, you know, decades ago, you know, sort of widely cast a protective net over other people, that that's not going to be sort of the thing that stops these claims from coming. Now, what claims will come? I don't know. It really depends on the facts and the evidence out there. But again, if I were an associate of Epstein's or somebody who participated in his scheme, I would be worried. And of course, among those powerful people who would like this thing to go away is Alan Dershowitz, who we're now learning tried to get Trump to pardon Ghislaine Maxwell before he left office because he obviously didn't want <laughs> he obviously wanted that whole trial to go away. And presumably, since Virginia Giuffre has also accused him and her forced to provide him with sexual services. I imagine he's nervous as well at this moment. Well, Aya Gruber, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Aya Gruber, who's a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School, who teaches and writes in the areas of criminal law and procedure, comparative and international law, critical theory, and feminism. She's written widely on rape law, the feminist critique of provocation and self-defense, domestic violence reform, and on prostitution and human trafficking. And her latest book is The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.